This episode is brought to you by Facebook Gaming. Facebook Gaming is building the world's gaming community by helping game makers, developers, and publishers to build, grow, and monetize their games. They do, do this by providing research-based insights, in-depth case studies, as well as wide variety of educational materials. A recent example of this is Games Marketing Insights for 2021, a report that has just been released and is available to download for free right now. Of course, Facebook Gaming also helps developers and publishers of all sizes to deploy powerful UA and monetization strategies through a range of innovative solutions designed for games marketers in every corner of the industry. Go to fb.gg forward slash DOF for in-depth educational materials, including playbooks, webinars, blogs, and reports, as well as great video content. Really at Jam City, we want to treat the players first and foremost. We really care about their experiences. That comes down to ad quality and what type of ads they're seeing. We want to make sure that the performance is there. A waterfall management does take a lot of time. The big drawback is the back and forth with networks, obviously the uh, analysis behind it, and not always is the juice worth the squeeze, so to speak. That was Kyle. Kyle is the Senior Director of Ad Monetization from Jam City, and he uses IronSource's platform to automate his monetization and grow game revenue. That is time that is really maximized and could theoretically be a 50 to 100% to 2x increase in overall ad revenue. Theoretically, Level Play just automates a lot of that. That is a huge time sink for a lot of our teams. Want to grow like Jam City? Get the SDK on ironslc.com. That's ironslc.com. We all know it. Mobile marketing is going through a paradigm shift. With the industry moving towards a more aggregate way of measuring marketing efforts, marketers' ability to measure and understand the impact of their marketing investments is further curtailed. AppsFlyer, though, is not sitting on the sidelines. The company has set a goal to help their customers and the entire mobile ecosystem to successfully navigate the new era of mobile marketing. And that's where AppsFlyer's latest product, the incrementality solution, comes to play. It's a product that truly empowers marketers to gain a better understanding of the real value that their marketing efforts hold. AppsFlyer's incrementality solution is built around remarketing. It simplifies the process of designing, executing, and analyzing incremental lift tests at scale, which previously was something that only the biggest players on the market were able to do. With, with incrementality, marketers can focus on the end goal of their test without actually having to worry about the heavy lifting that comes with it. To learn more about incrementality and to read the success stories from publishers like Kabam, I suggest that you head out to appsflyers.com. Welcome to Twig 138. So this week, the Eric's are back. Uh, Sufer, you were in Miami. Chris, you were in Hawaii. Sufer, what right. are you doing in Miami? Uh, just a just a vacay. I've got a buddy there, and uh, it was fun. It was cool. All the things that people say about Miami are true, but it it is humid. It feels yeah. like you are in a dog's mouth. It's like so humid. <laughs> What's funny is you know. You hear these VCs on Twitter like, no, Miami's not that bad in the summer. I was, it was way worse than Austin. Austin is like, is like Arctic compared to Miami. Really? But just because yeah, of the humidity? Was, just the humidity. I mean, the temperature is about the same, 
but the humidity was just like you feel like you're in a sauna like i just sweated so bad walking around anyway i don't know if i could live there but it was very nice but look at you i mean at least you could say that you got a savage tan in miami i'm just That's a right. darker shade i'm just a darker yeah. shade of pale right yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was i was in hawaii for eight days i'm as white as ever dude it's terrible yeah. right um but i have to admit after eight days in hawaii i felt a bit relaxed it's been a while right i've been on kind of running ragged over the last year for, for doing lots of stuff and personal stuff. But um, I, Hawaii is a great place to relax. I'll give it that. But certainly not meant for someone like myself with my alabaster white skin. I mean, I, I really should be in like Germany or <laughs> Britain or somewhere like fucking, you know, like Scotland or something where yeah. it's overcast 24-7 or fucking Seattle, right? But um, you, that, that's why I stay in San Francisco. The- do you put on the sun shirt when you go to the beach, like the full long sleeve? Absolutely. Like... <laughs> Absolutely. I'm fucking rocking that shit, though, now, dude. I'm, I'm yeah. huge. Yeah. 60 um, plus SPF and a sun shirt. Yep. yep. Dude, All right. I, I'm serious. I was a fish out of fucking water out there. But <laughs> I did relax. It was very, very, very nice. And 83 was, you know, it was like in the 80s. So it wasn't, it was hot, but it wasn't bad. It wasn't terrible. And it wasn't as humid as something like Miami um so anyway it was good yeah um, I, and so just to be clear i'm very woefully unprepared for this particular one but i will be more prepared next week um i really wanted to talk about e3 but i realized that i just couldn't talk about it intelligently but um you know we'll, we'll touch on it a little bit okay yeah um but yeah this week uh mishka wanted to come on <laughs> kept pinging us to be like what are we doing this week and then we realized no mishka's having a kid what was it yesterday yeah, yeah, two, just had, just, two, two, yeah, two days ago. Two days ago. Yeah, just had just had a second daughter. So congrats dude, twin to, gir- to Miska. Yeah. Twin girls, dude. He has three daughters. That's oh, a he lot had of twins. Women. No. Did he have twins? No, no, what no, he just, said? Just, no, he had no, one. just the one. He, he means he has two girls now. Oh, oh I see. I see. Sorry. God, I, I, I misunderstood him. No, if, if he had twins and then was trying to jump on the podcast like a day later, that <laughs> would be insane. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm assuming we're going to see him next week, even though, you know, truthfully, he should probably just take a break, you know, yeah. try that out. But anyways, um, let's jump into the podcast into some updates. Um, so the first big one that I spotted was FIFA 2021. Their loot boxes can now be previewed before you buy them. Um, so for a limited time, so this is not permanent, uh, for the Euro Ultimate Team event, EA is testing what happens if they offer previewing a pack. So basically, um, like a time-limited window where they can see that revenue impact. When you buy a pack, you can now click preview and see which cards you would get if you were to purchase that pack. Uh, However, each time you preview it, you then have a 24-hour refresh timer before you can preview another pack. Um, And if you buy that pack, you have to buy the one you previewed. Um, So it'll be an interesting system to see if it actually impacts anything with revenue. Unfortunately, we won't be able to see this. There's no sensor tower equivalent here to be able to see that that day by day revenue. Um, But I'd love to be at AEA and actually see what would happen. Eric? So just as a a point of context, over this last week when I was on vacation and all my clients really knew I was on vacation, I got like maybe six or seven emails about this. And nothing about E3 because how bad E3 was this year. Just, just, to, just to put a point of clarification. So this is a big deal because basically what they're trying to do is circumvent this, the 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 Ragnarok of um, 
country legal battles about fucking loot boxes and children and whatever, all the gambling and all that other stuff. And so I think they're just testing the waters to see if this type of thing will have any impact on revenue. Um, and so uh, this is something I guess they're just going to try out and see with the old game. So my, I asked my son while I was on vacation because obviously I had to do something. I, I you know, I had to like figure this out. I said, what would, would this mean for him with NBA 2K? And he responded was that he said, look, the big spenders are going to keep spending because they buy insane amounts of packs in order to build up their characters. But maybe some of the lower end spenders, the, the, the more casual players would spend more if the previews were enabled. Um, and I have to admit, I was pretty impressed. I mean, <laughs> that's exactly what my first instinct was. But I, then again, I'm not really too sure, you know, like because, you know, it, 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 I, I, there, there's two things that, that bother me about this whole this type of system is it creates an insane amount of friction for purchasing. Right. You know, 24 hour wait seems like a long time uh, for, for that. And then and then all my son also said that the fact is that the cards are so fucking rare that you want that a preview would basically indicate like the, the pointlessness of, of buying these packs. So. Given those kind of two things or a couple of things, I'm actually curious as what you think, Adam. I mean, like, do you think this, forget about whether or not it eliminates the illegal issues that they're coming up with against with some countries in Europe in particular, um, but do you think this will reduce the amount of spend or, or increase the amount of spend or be neutral or what? What's your gut? gut? Oh, I think, I think it will go down. I just don't know how much, right? I think it's probably the best system they could do um, for previewing, um, but I don't. I couldn't tell you if it's a single-digit percentage or if it's a double-digit percentage. Yeah. Super. What were you thinking? Uh, I don't know. I feel like I agree with your son, Eric. It's probably like at the margins. Yeah, this prevents some people who are kind of like minor monetizers from buying, but like the, you know, the heavy spenders are going to still get to spend. I, I don't think. I don't know. Yeah, and yeah, I. I the way he described it actually was like, he was like, of course they're going to spend, right? Because they just start doing this, 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 you know, yeah. getting as many cards as they want and then optimizing their, their team loadouts, right? But yeah, I don't know. It'll be interesting. So again, obviously a test to circumvent some of these things that are coming down from some of these small countries in Europe, some of the old European countries, um, old Europe. Um, yeah, we'll see what, what the response is. So my job is to figure out what, what the uh, impact's going to be. What's the, what's the latest on that? Like, I, I think there hasn't been any movement on the regulation of loot boxes in the last few months, right? Like, latest, I think, was Belgium had uh, some legislation that they were drafting? or Yeah, I mean, Belgium have already outlawed it, right? So EA doesn't even sell loot boxes in Belgium. Okay. Maybe, maybe, maybe this will help them get into those countries that have already excluded them. But mm. I, I think it's more of a, of a, of a, uh, um, what's, what's the right word? It's, it, it, you know, I think it's more of trying to get ahead of what is likely to come from Europe. Um, mm. And then I'm also hearing that FIFA is getting a little bit, uh, you know, I, I don't know if we, I can't remember if we talked about this in the podcast, but like FIFA is getting a little bit worried about um, these loot box. Uh, controversies as impacting their brand, which is ironic because FIFA is the most freaking treacherous company ever, right? Like organizations, they are so fucking dirty. They're like mafioso shit, right? So like, yeah. I don't know why they their their brand is so tarnished already. I don't know if loot boxes is going to really add to that. So I don't know. We'll see. 
Wasn't it? It literally was the mafia that was involved in that, right? Like, weren't they? Uh, it, like, oh, literally dude, they are, the mafia. <laughs> yeah, they they are they're despicable. They're despicable. <laughs> they, I mean, they, it, it's well known that they are just completely, you know, tarnished in terms of you know credibility. I don't know, dude. But yeah, loot boxes, they're, they're man. That's that they crossed the line. With yeah, that, boxes, that, that the crosses line. the line. So <laughs> I have, has no standing of giving them uh, giving EA bad you know juju for this shit. Because, but nonetheless, but, uh, maybe we should get Hoppy or something on the podcast again just to talk about how that how this whole loot box thing is is, is building. Because I know I think the last time like when Joe was on the podcast must have been like a year ago we talked about this. We still felt like okay, there's some red herrings coming from from Europe, but unlikely to make any major changes. But it sounds like. No, it looks like at least like at least with kids, loot boxes are. Yeah, are I, 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 maybe I'm just trying to be, you know, s- simplify this too much. But I really just think if they eliminate the the kids thing, if they do some age gating or some way of like not going after the kids, I think most of those countries will will be we'd be fine with it. So, I mean, but that's I agree. Yeah, yeah like, let's but, focus on on the kids aspect, which it seems like is driving a lot of this policy. And so this maybe this this system will actually help because you know they you know preclude kids from I don't know yeah, I don't know we'll, we'll see all right moving um, on yeah moving on so Wild Rift League of Legends so we had a bet with Joe um, way back when it first launched did its first like big open beta I think that was around the end of March so we were looking at basically from that launch March twenty eighth for the first year from twenty twenty one to March twenty twenty two that worldwide revenue minus China, Korea, and Japan. So I just want to kind of track where that's going. So Wild Rift has now hit about 17.2 million in revenue since that point, 15.4 million downloads during that time. So overall is hitting about a $1.1 RPI and continuing to grow from here. So it looks like overall, we underestimated the ability for this game to monetize. It's, it's over that $1 that I think we were all kind of tracking to and growth but growth overall seems slow um, with downloads growing at about 1.5 million a month. Um, so if we look at kind of that 15.2 that it's at right now, based on 13.7 and just extrapolate, we're looking roughly about 30 million, maybe even 40 million if they can reach some peaks by the end of that full year. So it looks like it's tracking towards about a 30 million to 50 million a year live business um, and hopefully really able to grow from there. But that's kind of where our bet is netting out right now. What, 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 um, what did we bet? I mean, what was our what was our targets? So our bet was that March 2021 to March 2022, minus China, Korea, and Japan, how much total revenue during that time? Yeah, and what was what was what, was, what did we bet? So I what need did we to guess? So, so I have to go back and check those notes, but um, pretty sure Joe was the lowest one, right? I think he was something around like 40 million. I was 50 million, something like this. I have to double check. Yeah. yeah yeah. I think I, I was a hundred, but I don't know. Maybe not. You were a hundred million. Well, no, screwed. maybe not. <laughs> You're screwed. Okay. Um, okay. Moving on to app Annie. So the app Annie just released their mobile gaming report. They reported the downloads rose about 30% Q1 over Q1 from 2020 to 2021 and spending was up 40%. Um, but note with this, we're just still kind of comparing pre pandemic to post pandemic. Or, or during pandemic. So, so far, this is just kind of repeating what we've really seen, that kind of 30 to 40% bump. Uh, Battlefield 2042 uh, was announced um, just over two weeks ago. Um, so this is really EA's great hope to compete against Call of Duty, um, although you know Apex Legends is also doing great. Um, this is a, the theme here is near future military. 
So not as crazy as say advanced warfare was or infinite warfare was, uh, but still like a very big focus on mostly modern combat in big, big battlefields. Um, pretty much won the show at E3 in terms of viewership. Um, but the, the big headline that was announced that there would be no campaign, so no single player campaign and no battle royale mode, um, which is the, the big flags. And I think what, what makes people scratch their heads here, because like no campaign, the last time that this happened was with Call of Duty Black Ops 4, which had a relatively weak showing given the brand uh, with the team pointing to the lack of campaign. So this is a bold move by Battlefield, especially for a $60 game. Uh, so hopefully it allows them to focus on the multiplayer element and overcome that challenge. On top of that, that, no Battle Royale mode. Sure, I think fatigue of Battle Royale has definitely risen since uh, um, the last time, but it also means that, you know, that, that kind of takes off that Warzone type of free-to-play model off the table because that Battle Royale mode absolutely drives a lot of baseline engagement for Warzone and a lot of design space for those crazy live events. So, you know, if they remove this and they're trying to do some sort of free-to-play mode, which now Halo is and, of course, Call of Duty is, right, like what could this additional mode be? So there has been some rumors kind of popping up on the web of this new Battlefield Hub mode, which is a sandbox mode. Um, no idea what this could be, um, but hopefully this is what is going to be filling that void that that Battle Royale could be filling, right? So have some design space and plugs for live events and allowing um, them to create like war zone zombie types of events that keep pulling players back. So really, like, can the Battlefield team deliver that higher bar um, to actually pull players away from war zone? That's the, the big question here. Yeah, the only comment I have on this one is that uh, the single player thing, you know, the dice guys never really created a great single player except for bad company. Yeah. Um, so that I don't think that's a huge loss. I think there is some bitching and moaning about having a $67 product with no uh, uh, single player content, you know, from, from, you know, the enthusiast press and stuff, but. <laughs> but Personally, I think the battle Royale mode thing is a bigger thing for me. Yeah. Like removing that. Um, no, but okay. But, but not to get too detailed into this, but I, I think it's all hands on deck to get this game out. I mean, they have like three or four different studios working on this, including it's Criterion. Five. I think it's five. Yeah. Oh, really? And yeah. so like, ultimately, they're going to get more and more content out and support this game. And the one thing about uh, Battlefield that you have to know is that Europeans just freaking love this game, right? So it's like, they're, it, it, all games are like 60-40, North America, Europe, but these games tentatively are 40-60 or 50-50 because uh, uh, DICE and, and, and they're legacy and, and there's also a huge pc community that loves this game so there's a minimum amount of people that are going to buy this and so ultimately if they continue to deliver with the content i think uh this game will do quite well and uh, and also you know relatively compete head-to-head -head with call of duty the problem is that call of duty is like so entrenched right now and, and the number of people that are playing it is so high that it's going to take a while a bit to get people out but if they do come out with a new mode um that is different um than battle royale but unique in its own right for battlefield i think that that could be an opportunity for them to pick up some of those warzone players as well for them to try and that will come ultimately but the game is coming in hot i think and and they're going to release content over time so uh, and when we'll you say europe do you include russia in that as well i don't know is russia big i, I guess russia is a big pc community i don't know actually it's yeah. been a while no, I, I'm just, my brain keeps going back to Tarkov, which is obviously one of the bigger shooter games for right. Russia and, and, specifically. And, you know, uh, uh, World of Tanks, obviously, is absolutely massive out there, Yeah, so, yeah. which is a primarily a PC. So, yeah, I, I bet they are big. But, like, Germany, 
and um, UK. Yeah. Um, I've also got one quick update before we move over to Eric. Um, so friends of the podcast and, um, you know, old employer myself, as well as Eric Sufer, uh, Wuga yeah. is offering or, or got two big roles open. One is head of product management and one is head of user acquisition. So um, at least for myself, I can definitely speak. Wuga is one of the my, my favorite companies that I've ever worked for. Um, great studio and also living in Berlin is amazing. So I definitely recommend it. Aren't those both of our previous roles? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> but still, still haven't replaced us, man. It's been yeah. what? <laughs> pretty sure, pretty sure I wasn't head of product management. I you guys, you guys, you guys are irreplaceable. Yeah. It's impossible yeah. to find yeah. someone to fill yeah. your shoes. Oh yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I had two quick updates. One was um, just kind of something uh, interesting that had f flown a little bit under the radar. Uh, I tried to amplify it on Twitter, but I, there wasn't much uptake. Um, Facebook just uh, emailed advertisers two days ago that they're bringing contextual targeting to the Facebook audience network. It's really interesting for a couple of reasons. One is that Facebook had published this semi-dramatic blog post, I think back in December, where they claimed that the changes that were coming to iOS were going to force them to shut FAN down, right? I mean, it's almost, you know, you know, almost like a threat uh, or or a lamentation of, of, of how, how disastrous this was going to be for 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 the in, for the kind of market um, well clearly they're not going to shut FAN down they're transitioning it over to, 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 to contextual targeting um, so on that basis uh, that's probably very nice for a lot of the publishers that um, you know had, had worked with FAN now obviously it won't it won't be as performant as it was um, but you know it's going to continue to exist they don't have to completely uh, uh, remove it from their waterfall uh, or their bidder. Uh, actually, I think FAN moved completely to bidding, but in any case, they don't they they don't have to completely excise it from their uh, from their revenue mix. Uh, the other kind of interesting component of this, though, is that that means FAN is basically going to compete directly with the um, rewarded video networks. Most of those kind of operate primarily on contextual targeting, and you know they they utilize the IDFA to some degree, but not nearly as much as Facebook did. Um, but you know, any any sort of gaming network has a lot of contextual data to to use, right? You know that if someone's in a game, then they probably like games like that. And if you advertise games like that to them, there's a high likelihood that you know they could be relevant. And that means, you know, I think there was there was kind of a a, a lot of celebration when when FAN and or when Facebook announced they might shut FAN down because that's some number of some billions of of revenue that potentially could be up for grabs for the rewarded video networks that, you know, primarily operate within the gaming space. Well, now, obviously, this, A, that's not going to happen because it's not shutting down. And B, now FEN will compete directly with those ad networks, which could be potentially bad news for them. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting, kind of a quick update. I guess we won't know more. They said in the coming weeks it's going to happen. Um, I, I don't know how how easy it will be to parse out the impact of this because FEN is sort of hidden in the in the um, ad revenues uh, in their 10 in their 10 Qs, but um, I, I think it's interesting. Um, and then the other quick comment I had was um, there was a, a, a kind of mini article or analysis published in the Deconstructor of Fun newsletter. Um, and Miska had me, asked me to kind of give some commentary on it. Uh, I was published by Kelly Chu at Luna Labs. And the, the title was three reasons why Voodoo acquired an ad tech company, right? And so the the news here was that Voodoo, the hyper casual games developer, uh, had acquired BidShake a few few weeks ago. Um, it's an Israeli marketing automation platform. And 
Um, you know, the thesis of the article is there's three reasons. One, it's, uh, you know, laying the bricks, uh, laying the first bricks for Voodoo's content fortress. And thank you for uh, crediting me for, for, for that term. Uh, the other was that it's, uh, you know, Voodoo is putting another foot into it's expanding out, out outside of hyper casual and this will help them. And the, and the last is that it's a classic response to iOS 14. Well, I think reasons one and three are probably the same, right? And I'm not so sure about number two, but yes, this, this is just another example of a, of a content company um, bringing ad tech uh, and applying it to their, to their sort of content operations to, to create the walls of their content fortress, right? So that, you know, they can more intelligently, more systematically move users throughout their portfolio. Uh, this is exactly aligned with what Zynga did uh, by, by acquiring Sharpoos and, and what AppLovin did with buying Adjust and, and what, you know, any number of content companies are looking to do right now in terms of acquiring ad tech. Um, what Skills did with Arky, there are quite a few examples. Um, and this is just another another example of that, another instance of that. And my sense is that you'll see a lot more of this happening. What I'm, what the problem is now that there aren't that many independent ad tech companies to buy, um, at least not, you know, given given the the largest the largest games developers have bought up the biggest ones. Um, the prices for the sort of mid tier ones are still very very high. And you know, if you're a, you know, a a a, nat, a, a gaming company, you're you're doing I don't know, fifty million in revenue a year below. It it's going to be very difficult for you to buy your way into this. You're gonna it's something you either have to build. Or that supports this idea of just consolidation within gaming so that, you know, these big gaming aggregators can say, look, we have this ad tech infrastructure, join our portfolio and, you know, you'll be in a much better competitive position than, um, you know, than you would be on your own. Is, is that, okay, look, Eric, you're the expert here, but dude, this just seems like a total Ponzi scheme, right? It's just bidding up these assets that may or may not help them over the longer term to build up this content fortress and then just selling the idea that they're, that they have a content fortress and, and they have this, this advantage that others don't. And then ultimately when it doesn't deliver, it's going to collapse. Right. I mean, I don't know. Well, well if it, if it, I mean, I think it will deliver. I mean, I think the, the, the strategy makes sense. This execution that is well, questionable, I mean, right? I'm right. So like, it's like, yeah, like EA, you know, which basically has no UA infrastructure at all like doing this kind of strategy or Zynga, which doesn't have any, any, you know, UA consolidation of U, their UA infrastructure. Like, I mean, they're, they're doing the strategy, but it doesn't even make sense. You know, Voodoo maybe, right. But I don't know. Hyper casual seems to be a really tough place to be regardless. So it's, I, I, I continue to believe that they're selling a story and not really the execution is the hardest part. And that, that part is going to be the, what what undoes all of this, right? So I'm not I'm not suggesting your strategy of content fortress is wrong, but without execution, like it's it's it seems good total Ponzi scheme in a way. Do you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure. Or, yeah, well, there's there's certain companies that this is a good fit for. I think I think this was actually a, a very smart idea on Voodoo's part. I think it's a very shrewd move. Um, there's a lot of companies that this just wouldn't work for, uh, right. and that maybe just have FOMO, right? And I don't, I, I mean, I can't really point to any that this has happened for yet where that is true. I think the ones, they, I don't know. I mean, Zynga, I, I feel like that if they have someone leading that, yeah, that could probably work. I think their portfolio lends itself to this, but you, you, it's going to be, it's going to be, a, it's going to be a, a lot of, it's, it's, it's a big undertaking. 
Yeah, I, I, I don't even think they have the DNA for the Zynga, to be honest. But like, yeah, Voodoo makes sense. In the, you know, App Lovin, you know, those guys are just rock stars, right? Um, I mean, they're still way overvalued, but that that, that makes sense from a strategy perspective. Um, anyway, it's going to be interesting to see how this all comes to pass over the next, you know, six to 12 months. But well, what's, uh, what's your thoughts on BidShake? I've never, I've actually never heard of this service. So it, it, was it one of the better marketing automation <laughs> platforms? Does it actually give Voodoo some talent that they or some skills that they didn't have before? I'm not, so I'm not super familiar with BitShake. I, what I know is that they're just basically like ag aggregate data across uh, channels. And I, you know, apologies to anyone at BitShake if I'm completely misrepresenting your business, but that, that's my understanding that you basically got to take all this data and put it in one place and, and all the analytics were in one place. And it was just very easy to have like a holistic view of your UA spend, which I think it, it's, so it's it's less of like an ad network, right? And more of like, uh, you know, a, a broad analytics system. Um, so there's less of like the content fortress idea kind of applies here. I mean, I guess if you apply that to like cross promotion or you're even just looking at generally like CPMs and trying to optimize when to cross promote when not, that makes sense. And this is probably helpful. I think it's, it could also be, hey, we need to, we, a lot, so a lot of these acquisitions now, you're not even buying ad tech companies because, they're gone, they're acquired. Now you're buying teams, right? And if, if you wanted to buy a team to do a thing and, and buying a company that does that thing is too expensive, you know, you buy a team that does something else, you know, where that company is less expensive just to acquire and have them do that thing. I don't know if that makes, that, that was a weird No, it makes complete it. sense. But, 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 but this may, that, that makes more sense here, right? Because I'm assuming that they, they probably had a lot of this technology already built up through Voodoo. They, they've been launching, you know, hundreds of games for the last how many years, right? They must have figured out some of this automation before. So getting them, yeah, basically aqua hire to get them to build the ad network that they need internally makes more sense to me. Well, yeah, because also, I mean, a lot of that, you know, ad network, when you say ad network, you really just mean automating a bunch of different stuff. And if that's yeah. what BitShake does, then, then it's basically the same kind of thing. All right. Can I just be... The cynical man that I am, right? Look, you just voodoo. came back from Hawaii, man. <laughs> I know you guys are already enraging me about voodoo, voodoo. Look, voodoo. Goldman Sachs did an insane deal at an insane valuation. They are trying to claw back as much money as possible. So what do they do? They do this content, this Eric Seaford content bullshit Super. strategy. Super, <laughs> Super, whatever. And they're basically they're pitching this idea that they are going to be an amazing company now that they have this podunk little, you know, bid shake thing. And now they're worth a gazillion dollars because, you know, not, they're not worth two or four times revenue. They're worth like 20 times revenue now because they have this new bid shake thing, which is a, is it the fact that no one in this, on this podcast knows who they are could kind of as an indicator that like they're, they're a meaningless acquisition, but they can pitch this to investors. And now they're worth 20 times revenue. That's it. It's a PR move, right? Okay. <laughs> I would say that's the cynical point of view. Um, but anyways. I mean, but they, these guys are the most sophisticated, one of the most sophisticated teams in the world building yeah. their games. Why do they need something like BitShake, which is like, you know, a, a second, third, fourth tier, you know, uh, company in, in the space? You know what I mean? So I think it's just a, it's just a, it's a strategic move of, of, of a PR move more than anything. But again... I'm very cynical. Now I'm back, right? I was yeah, so relaxed back. before. <laughs> it was all like rainbows 
and unicorns, right? But now, no more. All right, moving Congratulations, on. Congratulations, oh. Bitchick. Congratulations, Bitchick. Okay, let's move on. Well, um, E3, dude. So, E3. Like, let's get into before, this. Before you get started, let me just say, this E3 was the most pathetic E3 in the, in the <laughs> ever, right? Like, there's no denying that it was the worst E3 ever. And, and yet you have to do, you have to combine it with the summer game fest thing too, right? No, but that like, was bad too. Keely, yeah, yeah. every, every, even the people that love Keely were like, what the fuck happened? Like there was nothing yeah. going on with this. No one yeah. was participating. There was no real big reveals. And, and, and I know you're going to get to it, but the only people that actually had a good showing really was Microsoft and, and Nintendo and Nintendo disappointed in a huge way. And we can get to that later. Because you want, you wanted the hardware, right? Well, you, All you wanted well, was the hardware. No, but you also they 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 put everyone expected Zelda to come, and now they're saying 22, 2022 at the earliest. Right? Did Which anybody sucked. expect it to be coming this year, Zelda? Oh yeah, Breath yeah. They, they kind of implied that it was coming alongside the hardware. Now hardware, right? Which makes sense uh, because that game actually could tax the hardware, right? Um, I agree. But, with they, that. Yeah. but Nintendo, before you get started with Microsoft, but Nintendo did announce WarioWare and a few other games that kind of like pulled the, the purse strings of pushing pulled at the uh, heartstrings of, of the Nintendo fanboys. Um, Do you realize I, like right behind me, I have like a ton of Samus toys and like Metroid oh, yeah, fanboy. Yeah, yeah, I'm totally Metroid 2D. fanboy. So, yeah, so, 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 yeah. So even though they disappointed from that perspective and then, yeah, they didn't say anything about hardware. I think Nintendo did a good job relative to the rest mm. of the disaster. Yep. There was E3 like, like, uh, like the yeah, Borderlands. Yeah. But anyway, but, so but Microsoft. Still, over, overall but, winner, I think was Microsoft. Right? Oh, clearly, clearly. Yeah, so go ahead. Yeah. Um, so, like, because if, if we look at back at really the launch of Xbox Series X and this whole next generation, it's just been a desert on Xbox, right? There, there's there's nothing there. Um, but this really felt like they're actual coming out, and it was interesting because the coming out really was Game Pass, right? Everything is coming day one to Game Pass. So there was nine Bethesda's. Bethesda games coming now day one to Game Pass and of course multiple third-party games and the biggest reveal was Starfield um, which is I guess another like Bethesda Skyrim-esque um, uh, RPG um, but yeah it, it, that really was the the key message of that show um, Microsoft completely focusing on driving as many subs into Game Pass as possible regardless of what platform you're on PC or Xbox and wait, 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 wait. stop 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 dude you're bearing lead here, dude. They basically said that Starfield and basically every other fucking game coming from Bethesda is going to yeah. be Microsoft exclusive. And these Sony fanboys still thought that they, they had the chance of having Elder Scrolls and Starfield on their platform. And they yeah. just got completely destroyed, right? Yep. And like yep. I, I, the fact that even the fact that they thought that is is a ridiculous, right? That that Microsoft would spend seven and a half billion dollars just so they could deliver content across multiple platforms is like ridiculous, right? So it is exclusive to Microsoft Game Pass. Everything coming out of Bethesda, so it creates a huge. Is it like, exclusive to Game Pass, or is it because I think on PC you could still buy it through Steam? No, no, no. Oh, sorry, sorry. I'm ex yeah, right. Exclusive, right. Totally, but yeah. So day to one to console. Game Pass available on Game Pass. They'll they'll launch it other places. But you're saying they're not even going to launch it on Sony? I wasn't aware of that. No, yeah, they're oh, not launching well. it on Sony. Yeah, because I thought like the, one of the appeal of the Game Pass is that you could still launch it on other platforms, get some of those unit sales, but also use it as a plug to say, well, look, if you want if you want it more affordably, just go buy it on go and get it through Game Pass, right? Like no, you can, you can you can buy it a la carte on Xbox, but you can't buy it on Sony. That's the, that's oh, okay. the that was okay. the big announcement. 
Okay. Well, that's good. You know, leverage the asset that they acquired. That's that's smart. Um, as well as you know, doing as much as they can to leverage um, the value of Game Pass. And one thing here was this whole Halo free to play thing, right? Um, that Halo will have the free to play mode at launch, as well as you know, launch Halo Infinite. Um, so I think the, the the good here is that the free to play launch I think makes sense. You know, not for Call of Duty, maybe not for Battlefield. Um, but definitely for Halo, when you've got something like the Game Pass to pull them into, um, and also just maintaining CCU and really, you know, the loss of first day sales just isn't really that big of an issue. Versus the bad here, there was an announcement that Halo Infinite will have an infinite battle pass. I don't know if you guys saw that. No. What yeah, does so, that even mean? So it means battle passes have no time limits at all, which to me, like an infinite battle pass that has no time limits almost feels like an oxymoron. Like it almost feels like, like what's the point of the feature? You're just talking about a, a free track that you can earn a whole bunch of cosmetics on. Um, and especially like a game that mostly sells cosmetics, which are you know durable goods that have a very heavy production cost, right? Like leveraging a battle pass system to drive retention and monetization is a really, really odd trade-off, right? And I think this just kind of inflates their cosmetic economy and for any sort of live revenue estimation here, we'll drop it. But in, in this case, it just seems like they're just trading off even more for retention and hoping that the goodwill of not even having time limits on these battle passes will pull more more players in. But well, I, personally, okay, I don't well, buy that. But, but maybe this is more like an achievement system yeah, right? but, where it's sure. a longer term, quote unquote, battle pass. Maybe they'll have a battle monthly battle pass or, or seasonally battle pass as well. Mm, doesn't sound like it. Sounds like it's, it's just uh, like... I wasn't, Sorry, yeah. I haven't been watching this. So I'm just kind of throwing it out there. Yeah. Um, but regardless, everything here is about Game Pass. And right. And like the last time we heard, or last time we talked about this, 18 million subs um, still obviously going to be growing now that these games are going to be um, moving forward. So that the interesting part here is figuring out the value of all this content, right? Um, love to take a look at things like subscriber churn. Like I'd love to be able to see that graph of Netflix, Disney Plus versus Game Pass in terms of churn. Um, and see that change over time as they um, adjust this content. But now with really like a hundred plus games, all of EA plays content, all these day one games, and now even the value add of uh, cloud streaming on top, like this, this subscription absolutely is a no brainer for Xbox and PC players, just widening their market without really even having to sell consoles. And I think their bet now is that they can really reach those players regardless of console ownership on old generation or new generation on PC, not even just console, and they can just execute on a full streaming ecosystem where really Stadia and Luna absolutely can't. Um, so the question really is just how large this TAM can be um, relative to that that subscription base, right? Um, so in, really my bigger question here is Sony, like looking at what's happening with Val Microsoft creating all this value, what do you do? Like, do you, you know, Sony has arguably better content, bigger dev budgets, massive player ecosystem, but with Microsoft really feeding their past, building up streaming, do you just sit back and wait? Or do you get afraid and actually start building a competing service of your own? And I realize there is PS now, but there still is an option out there. Like they go work with Stadia to figure out the streaming aspect and they start investing day one in, um, of their exclusives in the PS now. But really, should they? Eric, what do you think? Well, first of all, I, I, I did read a little bit of coverage on, on this because I, I did think the Microsoft was obviously the most uh, robust um, announcements that were made and, and definitely really positive for everybody, including gamers. 
um, except for Sony owners who can't get access to Bethesda content. <laughs> but um, I, 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 I clearly want to distinguish between xCloud and, 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 and their, their online service because I don't think xCloud is a very big part of their online service. And if I were to guess, you know, like maybe 5% of the people are probably using xCloud versus 95% are using sure, Game sure. Pass. You know, and so it, like it, it still it still remains just a cherry on top feature, right? Right. If if freaking Nuzu is putting a nickel of this subscriber revenue into XCloud into like their cloud gaming thing, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna lose my mind, right? Because the, the, it's not even part of it. Now they say they're bringing it to televisions. That was another announcement that was made. They're they're bringing it to um, other set top boxes, etc. Probably like Roku and shit like that. That that gets a little bit more interesting, but we will see. Um, but I just want to make that clarification. So what does Sony do right now? Um, you know, they, they try to make, they're trying to make Sony PS now better by doing downloads, right? Forget the, forget the cloud stuff because that wasn't working because their technology is terrible. Um, could they license Stadia stuff and, and build that out, you know, white label it or something? Maybe. Um, but the real question is forget that part because I don't think that's actually material at all for Sony. What, I, what, what the question is whether they will replicate the type of uh, service that they're doing for Game Pass. Um, and the challenge here is that Sony has an absolutely massive first party organization and they are super old school because none of them can actually make games as a service. Uh, but the content they have is actually geared towards a content subscription because it's all like 12 to 20 to 30 hours experience content which would be good in a sense, they only get like one or two games out a year, right? So that that they could make strategic sense to do it. The problem is I just think that they're, that Studio Org is too old school and they're gonna, they're, they've been so successful in what they've done and they have such a dominant position in the marketplace that only until they start to feel the share dwindle on the hardware side, um, will, they, will they, you know, respond. Um, that's kind of my gut is that they will take but, a long but will time. That, but will that be too late? And should they, like regardless of obvious execution issues with their culture, should they be doing it now? Should they be shifting now? <laughs> I don't know, man. I'm a little bit worried, dude. I'll be honest. Like, like the value prop is so huge for the consumer at this stage, particularly with the Bethesda content for Microsoft. Like when you're talking about a hundred games for $150 a year. What does that imply? Does that imply that Halo is worth a buck 50? You know, like it's a, yeah. it's a little bit scary, you know, like a AAA product that costs over a hundred million dollars to make is really worth a buck 50, you know, like, you know, and I, and I think it, it is, it is dangerous, but given, given that Microsoft doesn't really care. I mean, if you look at the P and L, for what they did in terms of the acquisition for Elder Scrolls. And I should probably do this math. Like the fact that they are excluding Sony from the platform wars, which is probably 60 to 65% of the revenue associated with uh, Bethesda historically, like you, you can't make that work on the, on the money side, right? That doesn't work, right? You cannot ever get that paid back, right? I mean, maybe in like 20 years, right? But that's maybe that's where they're thinking. They're thinking like the long-term, right? These like, you know, dot-com type models, right? With the, you know, DCFs for 50 years from now or something. But, 
but fundamentally, like you can't compete against that. And so Sony like discounting their products in any way, but, but that would be pretty devastating for them, I think on a, on a, on a profitability basis, potentially. And they probably see that, right? Uh, Microsoft doesn't give a shit because it's, it's, it's part of an over huge organization that's buried, right? Um, so anyway, I'm just kind of talking out of my ass right now, but fundamentally, I think ultimately they will have to, right? Because I do think Microsoft will start to uh, eat in a little bit of share with this type of content that they're providing, particularly with the games that they're coming out with that are super compelling, you know, like Elder Scrolls and Starfield, et cetera. Um, but, uh, but I don't know. I don't know. What do you think, Adam? I, I think one thing that's really flawed is that dollar fifty for Halo, right? Like valuing content at that level isn't the wave, right? Like if we think about Netflix and that huge budget that they have for creating all the content that they need to feed that subscription, setting setting those budgets relative to the value they expect to come out of that subscription, whether that's new new subscribers or long term engagement, right? is really how you have to look at this stuff. So something like Halo, obviously, when you've got 18 million subscribers, each person give you a hundred bucks every single year, right? That's quite a lot of money. That's almost guaranteed revenue. And you start have to ask, okay, well, what? how much of that should I be now spending on dev budgets to feed the next year to hopefully continue to grow my subscription? And then do you spend it on say 10, 50 million dev budget games or one 500 million dev budget game, right? So right. something like Halo obviously is gonna drive a lot more subscribers than I think like the Life is Strange type of stuff. That doesn't mean Life is Strange is not valuable. It just means that those are two different audiences and very two very different strategies. And I think, I don't know either. I think I would love to speak to like a Netflix PM and just figure out how they value content and how they set these budgets. Because yeah, I agree I, it's, that the math on this is incredibly hard. And I think you can you can end up in a situation where you're spending a lot of good money on bad things instead of um, um, optimizing your spend. Yeah, I guess I'm talking more from the consumer perspective. Like, how yeah. hard is it going to be to convince someone to spend seventy dollars on a game when they can yeah. pay you know one hundred fifty for a library of a hundred games, right? <clears throat> yeah, th th that this is that's Microsoft's bet here, right? Is is the easiest way to complete compete against Steam's massive game libraries? And, and Sony's exclusives is you make this into a no-brainer subscription. Um, but you're right, it devalues the content within it. Now, my expectation is when I pay 15 bucks, I get Halo, right? Versus before I was spending 70 bucks. And right. their trade-off is TAM, is that they assume they can get all of these but, people that n never would have spent a hundred bucks a year. Okay, so, and, and that, that's, where, that, that's where it falls off for me. It's like the, the TAM does not improve because you have a subscription model, right? I think the content itself is so core and so geared towards this core audience that you're not gonna build a bigger audience, I don't think, on, on the consoles by providing this or uh, on the service. So that that's where I think the risk is. And that's where their models probably start to fall apart is that we have like 100, maybe 200 million people in the, in, in the West that, that, uh, that participate in the consoles. Like, can you actually really double that by, by you know, having these season passes? I don't know. The content itself is just not like, not. not but, and can you unlock any of these geos that would have been locked because of those price points before, well, right? Maybe. Uh, are we but, are we circling the are we circling the drain here? This feels like it's uh <laughs> we're not we're not talking about marketing tech anymore. So Eric is this, this, like, this, this feels like <laughs> this, this is like, like a, this is the 
This is the question of the time, Mr. C- Sufert. Like, we'll, 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 like a, f- a flush moment. All right. All right. Let's, uh, <laughs> let's move on to Disney, okay? Let's move we'll on. Go into Disney. Disney. <laughs> yes. Uh, so this, I caught this article in uh, Gamas, or gamesindustry.biz. Uh, Disney's resurgence into video games is only just beginning. And the kind of the idea of the article was that Dis- Disney had a sizable, which I, I, I kind of zeroed in on the title because the title just tri- you know, triggered me. But totally. Um, totally. Disney had a sizable presence at E3 with games based on multiple Disney IPs being featured very prominently at the trade show. Among those games was Avatar Frontiers of Pandora by Ubisoft, the Pirates of the Caribbean collaboration with Sea of Thieves for Xbox, the Guardians of the Galaxy game from Square Enix. Um, in addition to these titles, Bethesda's Machine Works, uh, sorry, Machine Games is working on an Indiana Jones title, as are multiple Star Wars titles uh, being developed from the likes of Ubisoft and, in, and even Zynga. So we have a lot of titles coming out with Disney IP, and as and many of them were featured very prominently at E3. And as part of this PR campaign, the article um, had an interview with uh, with Disney's SVP of Games, Sean Shoptaw, and quoting Shoptaw. It wasn't getting out of games or downsizing from an ambition perspective around video games. It was really about rethinking in a new strategy about how to play in this medium. And what he's talking about is it's, it's, it's exodus from gaming, basically. Certainly, we made a good amount of headlines on the negative side and shutting down and selling studios and those sorts of things that were never fun. But it really was about a new ambition to go into this space in a more robust way, end quote. So ShopTop points to Disney's partnerships with studios like Insomniac, which developed Spider-Man for PlayStation, which is an excellent game, and Square Enix, which developed Kingdom Hearts as examples of instances where a Disney IP was utilized by an external studio to create successful AAA games. The article points out that Disney has mostly remained in mobile gaming since shuttering its Avalanche studio and announcing that it would approach video games exclusively as an IP licensor. So to my mind, that hasn't really changed, and I don't understand this PR push. Um, you know, I think the outsized presence of its IP at E3 really just underscores the fact that it hasn't changed. Those are all IP licensed games. Disney's not developing anything. It hasn't bought any studios. Disney has arguably the strongest gaming-capable IP catalog of any media or entertainment company on the planet, possibly with the exception of Nintendo. And it didn't acquire any studios or restart publishing activities during COVID, which to my mind means it has structurally organized itself as only a licensor and not a developer or publisher, which means this article, the title, which is Disney's resurgence into video games is only just beginning is, is just completely misleading at best, right? <laughs> That's just not true. Um, and I, I think this PR initiative is, is somewhat bizarre for that reason. It's obviously not true that Disney's gaming ambitions have intensified, but the gaming market has exploded, right? And so therefore they're licensing more IP because there's more games being developed because there's more money floating around the ecosystem um, as a result of COVID and, and you know, maybe some long-term behavioral changes. So Disney is accelerating its IP licensing business because gaming has exploded and has more opportunities, but not because, not, not because its ambitions have necessarily grown because it's still doing the exact same thing and, and it's not really re-entering the gaming market in any meaningful way. Eric, what do you think? Oh my God, dude. I, I literally just tried to unplug a lot, but I saw this particular headline and I almost lost my mind, right? Because yeah, the implication here is that Disney's getting back into video games. They are not, okay? They are not. And so um, if this is simply a PR puff piece, letting folks know Disney is serious about gaming and they're licensing all their brands as much as they can, you know? Because um, obviously they have the most amazing content in the world, right? And so it should be licensed, Um but to be crystal clear here, Disney is a licensing house, not a content creator. They will go where they can get the guarantees. 
quantity over quality clearly is the mode within mobile in particular. And now I think the good news here is that they're focusing more on console because they have been fucking abysmal on console for decades. And they cannot take credit for Spider-Man. They can't take credit for Kingdom Hearts. Spider-Man was a Sony license, right? Kingdom Hearts has been around forever. It took like, what, 19 years or 14 years for them to come out with a sequel to Kingdom Hearts 2. Likely that is because of the licensing issues surrounding, or partially because of the licensing issues surrounding around the, 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 the change of controls and stuff and the new strategy. Um, so... And, and the fact that there has not been a really successful Marvel game to date is almost criminal, right? How is that possible that, that you cannot figure out a way of licensing one of the best IPs in the world in a gaming environment, right? It, it's crazy. Now, the Square Enix game made a good effort, but we, we shall see. But I think part of it, more holistically, and, and Disney's biggest challenge is not a lot of the AAA publishers are not really interested in licensing IP. Now, I know there's exceptions to that rule, right? EA did do a license with, with Star Wars, but that license actually evidently was a re really sweet deal for EA, um, generally speaking. Um, because ultimately people want to have control over their own IPs to build out software as a service, to do loot boxes, to do whatever it takes in order to build, build successful products as a service. And the licensors are notoriously challenging when it comes to like Trying to trying to trying to expand the model and and do different things, experiment with different things. So, <clears throat> so ultimately, you know, I I am hoping that Disney can figure out the right partners to license some of their best content with and build great games. I'm excited about the Division game, for instance, or the massive guys that are building the Star Wars game. Um, I'm actually kind of curious as to what Square Enix can do with uh, Guardians of the Galaxy as well. Avatar, I think, is going to be an absolute train wreck um just of epic proportions but that's just me um but uh but anyway so again just to call it out this is a total pr puff piece nonsense misleading you know headline uh, like all things like many things that are out there and and people cover it like that right which is bizarre to me game industry.biz i mean they know better they should be calling them out on this stuff um and 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 making clear that they are not in the games business they are in the licensing business full stop right that's can, it can you explain explain the star wars because I, i'm not totally familiar with that deal i mean i know sony published it but how is that not i mean disney obviously was the ip license for the star wars uh, the, sorry the spider-man game oh no, no okay well i mean it's a long long history but ultimately when 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 uh marvel before they got sold to disney they were on the stick they were uh, sorry they're about ready to go out of business i mean they were they were mismanaging their licenses just in the most epic proportions, right? And so I think they basically sold the rights to Spider-Man to Sony, right? Oh. For indefinite rights, right? <laughs> so like, yeah, like one of their best characters, they sell out to a competitor more or less at the, at the time, but they, was, they were so desperate. Um, and so they may, I don't know exactly what the, what the current status is, but I, think, I still think Sony owns the rights to Spider-Man and they've been building Spider-Man games for a long time. Um, I see, and 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 doing the Spider-Man movies as well, right? Uh, but yeah. that that's not Disney, right? Um, Got it. So so yeah. So don't get me wrong. I mean, that's an amazing game, and there's there's no denying that that is a phenomenal Marvel game. Uh, almost every iteration of that game, but that that's not this guy. You know, that's not this guy's deal. This deal's been around right, for decades. Right. Yeah. Got it. Yeah. So that's all I'm trying to say. Um, so to, to date, they have not had a successful game on console. 
period, right? That I can think of. Is are you Adam? Is there anything that you can think of? What it, a successful like Disney licensed game fall on in console. Order. Fall in order. Fall in order. Respawn. Star Wars Fallen Order Jedi. Oh, sorry, sorry. Yes, no, yeah, you're right. No, that that's a good one. But that was again a good license for EA, right? But yeah, they need to do more deals like that. That, that. that is that was the best deals that they've done so far. And even Battlefront and ba- Battlefront Two and Three, even though you know the controversies around that were relatively successful. Yeah, but but with the MCU, I mean, I can't think of any that have been successful, and that's like the. I mean, that's got to be the most powerful franchise in existence. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, given the, given the success of the, the the films, right? I mean, like, especially yep. when they were Infinity War, like, aligned with that. I mean, I know in, in the article, he says, like, we're not doing the kind of film companion pieces anymore, but yeah. which is fine, which is fine. But I mean, the, 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 that franchise was, is, I mean, it had to be the biggest in the world during that time. And it was over the course of multiple yeah. years, right? So you had plenty of time to make a game. Yeah, I think that was the great hope of the Square Enix Avengers game, mm. the Crystal Dynamics one. But uh, yeah, I don't think it hit expectations I, I, at all. Yeah, I mean that game is getting close though, like to actually, mm-hmm. you know, live live the MCU. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I mean, but again, I I, I don't want to be too negative because I'm actually kind of hopeful that some of these games that they've licensed out now, like that's on the Skies' watch, right? Where what's his name again? I don't know him, but. It's Sean. So Sean, like, you know, the, the license to Massive, it makes total sense, right? That That is a smart, smart, smart deal, right? Um, I think for both parties. Uh, and then, um, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, I, I question Square Enix's ability to execute against that. And then uh, since EA no longer has, sorry, EA no longer has an exclusive, uh, they'll open up the Star Wars license to other uh, other teams as well, which which make it interesting. Um, but uh, so sorry. The, the really really important thing here is that if you really want to expand the demo for consoles, like you need these licenses to work, right? Because I still think the demo is still relatively narrow for for console gaming, and uh, and but getting these licenses and Disney getting smarter about it uh, is is really good for the overall health of the industry as a whole, bringing more people into the into the fold. So. Um, I think that's it. Yeah, <laughs> we always end no. like so crappily on this podcast, but yeah, well, hopefully, Michigan. <laughs> Flip it <Michigan>. do. <laughs> yes.